deeply broken inside because it was those, um, those secret things that had a deep attachment. I was the president of every Christian organization you could think of. What that meant was like, I knew how to hide stuff really well. Yeah, I mean, I constantly dealt with imposter syndrome of like, no one fully knows who I am. And I'll never forget that phone call, I was sitting in Airship Coffee in Bentonville and I got the call and she didn't say a word. She, she, I just heard tears and screaming and, and just heart heartbreak. So I took off and our lives have forever been changed from that moment. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. I know I'm supposed to confess my sins to God, but God already knows my sins. It's safe to confess my sins to him. But what about other people? Is there any benefit to confessing my sins to them? What about my spouse? Should I tell my spouse about my secret? What if my sin is private and embarrassing? What if my sin, if known, would cause the people I love hurt and pain? Shouldn't I just keep that sin to myself? Keep it a secret? Can't I just confess my sins to God? Wouldn't it just be better if I concealed my sin and buried it deep down? Won't it just go away eventually? These are the questions that my guest is going to answer today as he shares his life change story. I'm Eric Hutchinson, and this is the If Nothing Changes podcast. So, hey, friend, welcome to my podcast. Why don't you introduce yourself and let the people know who you are? Yeah, thanks, Eric. Thanks for the invite. My name's Hunter House, and uh, I'm one of the pastors at Fellowship Bentonville here in Northwest Arkansas. So, uh, been in the area since uh, 2007, and uh, yeah, love it. Well, so welcome. Glad that you agreed to come to my podcast. This is going to be fun. I don't know you very well, but I've seen you up on stage, and I've heard you share bits and pieces of your story. So why don't you tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so an Arkansas boy through and through, just the opposite side of the state. So I grew up in West Memphis, Arkansas, a couple miles from uh, Memphis, Tennessee. So it's the Delta so uh, you've got, you know, the heat there, the farmland, the hunting, uh, so a little bit of a different environment than Northwest Arkansas, but that's where I was born and raised. And so have uh, two parents who are incredible, uh, Jeff and Pam, they actually live up here now, and, and a sister as well. So I'm the, the youngest of two, and uh, my sister actually moved up here as well. So most of our family is located up here, but I would say, uh, you know, growing up in in West Memphis, I tell people a lot, helped shape my worldview. It helped shape a lot of uh, my attributes, and I think God used that location and that environment to show me a lot about who He is. So I don't know how familiar you are with West Memphis, but it's very different than Northwest Arkansas. Um, different demographic. Um, obviously, with Walmart here, there's a lot of money that pours into this side of the state. That is not the case in West Memphis. So. Uh, quite a bit of poverty, and um, I grew up, you know, with with great friends in a lot of ways, but also feeling a little bit like a fraud in some ways. And and the reason I say that is, you know, I grew up uh, just to be very frank as a rich kid in a poor community. Uh, I was also a private school kid in a predominantly public school community. Um, I was a white kid in a predominantly black community. And so I think early on, I developed this desire to fit in because I felt like so many attributes about me made me stick out, but I wanted to be known and welcomed by people. So 
that developed into an ability to learn how to please people, uh, which in some ways can be a great advantage in life uh, for business, for success, for other things. But as a human, man, you can develop uh, this almost second personality sometimes where you get lost in who you are and uh, your identity is shaped by what people want you to be. Our family grew up in the church, uh, grew up in a Southern Baptist church there in both West Memphis and Marion. I became a believer uh, in Jesus, started following Jesus at uh, age eight. It was at a revival. I think it was a Tuesday night revival in the Baptist church. Uh, walked the aisle. It was probably the third or fourth verse of Just As I Am, uh, just waiting on on somebody to say that they wanted to follow Jesus. And I'd felt a stirring. And when you grow up in that environment where uh, your parents talk about Jesus, uh, you go to church three or four days a week, um, it just seemed like the natural thing to do. And I don't say that to diminish that experience. Uh, I truly believe that my eyes were open to who Jesus was and that I wanted to spend eternity with him. So whenever you were in school, elementary, and you said you accepted Christ when you were eight years old, so God was injected very early in your life. But as you were in school, were you kind of a rule follower, or were you more of a, hey, I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm going to sneak around and do some things that maybe I'm not supposed to do? What what were you like in school? Well, on the outside and the inside, those were two different answers, I would say. Um, So growing up in a Christian school... Uh, I think I had to be the rule follower in a lot of ways. That was the standard. That was the expectation. And so I developed the ability early on to be the really good kid. Um, So, you know, whether it was succeeding in academics, athletics, or whatever, um, I also learned how to succeed in uh, morals and, you know, putting on this front of, like, I'm going to be the best of the best. I I want the adults to respect me. I want them to invite me into things. And so um, I would say, yeah, I was, I was a rule follower in uh, a lot of the sense of that term and wanted to be, you know, the, the leader of everything that I was in. Uh, I think I learned early on that there's power in leadership and, and, and influence with that. And so I was the president of every Christian organization you could think of. Um, I, I joke, we had, you know, superlatives like any high school would. And at some point in school, I think I was voted, I don't think it was called most Christian, but it was most Christ-like. But um, what that meant was like, I knew how to hide stuff really well. Uh, And because what most people didn't know throughout all of this um, is that I began an early addiction to pornography, I believe around the age of 12, and just a very innocent exposure. It was no one's fault, including my own. It was a result of satellite TV and a blurry channel that wasn't supposed to exist that, uh, man, my eyes just locked in and something happened and began this addiction in secrecy. And, you know, I'm 34 now. i got to remember that. But I grew up in the time where uh, dial-up internet was happening as I was an early teenager. Well, that then transformed into high-speed internet got my first smartphone when I was a freshman in college. And so it seemed like every milestone that I was hitting in life with it came this milestone of technology, which because I had a secret addiction to pornography just fueled that. And I can't fully remember, but I don't think I shared it with anyone. I know I didn't share it with my parents. I had a guy that was discipling me a little bit through our church, but I don't even think I really brought it up with him. Might've just done the, you know, like I struggle with lust type thing because at that point, especially in eastern Arkansas, southern culture, you didn't talk about this stuff at all. Um, and I didn't know how to, especially with the status that I had achieved as the best kid, you know, the the leader of everything. I'm 
teaching other kids how to walk with Jesus. Uh, I'm doing the prayer at our adult, you know, church service. Like I can't be exposing the fact that like I'm a porn addict. I didn't even know that was necessarily a term then, but that's exactly what it was. I was deeply broken inside because it was those um, those secret things that had a deep attachment. So me. what did you think about yourself? Yeah, I mean, I constantly dealt with imposter syndrome of like, no one fully knows who I am. Um, and I knew that. And in a lot of ways, I think I was even one of those people who didn't fully know who I was. And so um, because... I think it was such a legalistic society, and I'm not attributing that to my parents or anything like that. I think it was just the state of the 90s of not knowing how to process hard things and being in Southern Bible Belt. you just got to put the face on. Uh, I developed a pretty harsh view of myself and would beat myself up a lot internally and basically just say, like, if you're strong enough, you can defeat these sins. Like, what are you doing? Why do you keep running back to this? Um, and so what that did was it broke me down inwardly but it also forced me to build myself up with even more of a mask, almost compensate that. So as I've you know felt more and more shame and more and more guilt and more and more hopeless, I just performed all that much harder. And so I, and I've said this multiple times already, but I don't know that I fully understood all that. I thought I was in a lot of ways doing what I was supposed to do of like, I'm just gonna fight harder. I'm just going to fight harder not realizing the beauty and value of James chapter 5 of confessing sins to one another for healing. Confess to God every time. And, uh, and it didn't stop at pornography. I mean, that, that, that fueled, um, in a lot of ways, an addiction to exaggeration, which may sound really weird, but I really struggle with that. I love to exaggerate things, the simplest things. It could be an everyday thing, but I've, I just kind of found the more that you exaggerate, the bigger, the better the story. Um, and now I'm a pastor, and you know I tell stories all the time, so I have to be careful with that. But um, just kind of developed this addiction to putting on a front that wasn't fully true, but that would make me seem like a better person than I actually felt like I was. And that w- there wasn't a lack of wanting to follow Jesus. That's the the weird thing of all of this is I had the deep desire. I did not want to put on a face. But it was that darkness in sin that just had a stronghold on me and learned even more that that affected so many other aspects of my life. I became pretty much emotionally abusive to girlfriends, always had to have a girlfriend. I think there was something about that status of having a pretty girl and feeling like I was valued because I was dating her. And there was a lot of jealousy in that, emotional abuse, control um, that played out all the way into college till I hit a major breaking point. And um, so much of that was just eating me up on the inside and destroying my view of, of myself. Um, one of the things that will come up later, but is just this concept of grace. I had no concept of God's grace growing up, even though I could give you the biblical definition. I could give you all of the, the answers of what it actually was. I didn't know how to show myself grace and definitely didn't know how to receive it from Jesus and felt like I have to earn my way back into his family because I'm such a broken dark human inside. So did you do what we call white knuckling it? So you would confess your sin to God and you'd say, oh, this was wrong. I'm sorry. Oh, and yeah. did you go through this time of, okay, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to yeah. do it. I'm not going to do it. And then relapse. Oh yeah. Every time. And, yeah. and you know, I was actually talking with a young man about this, this past week. He was, he knows my story and he was asking, um, just about my struggle. And one of the things he said is like, how did you keep track of success? Like, did you count, did you count days that you would be able to go and all of this? 
And I think at his age, I did. So like, you know, high school, college, I did. And that led to even more shame in a lot of ways of I kept just trying to extend that number one day and then oh, I would fall again and go right back into it. So, um, you know, in a lot of ways, having to turn my chip back in uh, to God over and over, but definitely white knuckled it um, because I didn't bring anybody else into it. And I just thought, you know, because I was able to work my way into successful positions through school, through sports, being captains, being leaders, whatever, surely I can do that with God. Like I will work hard enough that eventually I will move into what I felt like I had to earn his love and his status. And that was going to look like ditching sin. And so if I just worked hard enough, I would get there. And, you know, 12 years into that struggle, I was still working and it wasn't working. So where did you go to college? So I went to the University of Arkansas. Uh, long story short, followed a girl uh, up here. That girl is not my wife, a uh, different girl. Like that's kind of what got me up to the U of A. And I had to make a decision. Like, do I stay here? Where really the only reason I came here was for a girl or do I transfer back home? I'm a mama's boy, wanted to be close to home. Honestly, wanted to go to a private school, private college, because I was convinced that public school kids went to hell, that like they're all just these heathens. So I'm not going to a public college. And yet here I was at one and had no friends. And so I came back my second semester of college. So this was spring of 2008, so in January. And that's where life change really started happening. That's where confession of pornography started happening with a mentor that I met through a local um, uh, collegiate ministry. And uh, I ended up working at a camp that summer and spending my summer uh, pouring into inner city kids I ended up um, joining a fraternity and getting a small group of men who were believers that next semester, uh, started attending local church more consistently for me, not not like just for show, but actually like to learn, started reading my Bible more consistently. Um, I had done it so much, but because of the status that I had achieved in all these things, I kind of just, I didn't take it that serious. Um, I would memorize scripture just to kind of show off that I can memorize scripture, but not to allow God to let it transform my heart. And so it was being led to a state of just emptiness and loneliness in that freshman year that God actually, I think, captured my heart in so many ways. But it was when I was 18 and a freshman in college, or I guess 19, um, right after I turned 19, that I felt this desire to pursue him with all of my life um, and to take these parts of darkness and actually put them into light and allow healing to uh, to start happening. So you graduated college. Where did you go directly after that? Did you get a job and start yeah. working or what happened? Yeah, so there's a big part of my story that's in there, which would be meeting a woman named Alexandra, Alex, uh, who's now my wife. So we met my uh, sophomore year, her freshman year, and hers is another crazy story that I don't have time to go into. We grew up in pretty different homes. She's from St. Louis. Um, she was a a diver at the University of Arkansas. So I'm sitting in biology class and, uh, the joke is we had instant chemistry, but she (laughs) sits, she sits behind me and, uh, we meet, she actually shakes my hand really firmly, uh, which a lot of girls in Southern culture didn't do. And she introduced herself. She's in all Razorback athletic gear. Um, she's also half Filipino. I didn't know that at the time. I just knew she wasn't white. And I was so intrigued by the mystery of like, who did I just meet? Like, she's this athlete. She shook my hand. I want to spend time with her. So we started dating a couple of weeks later, dated all through college. Um, and I let her in pretty quickly. I think it was month two. And I don't know that I would advise this to other couples. I think it's case by case. But I let her into my pornography struggles uh, pretty early because I had experienced some freedom, not full freedom, but had found the joy in 
being fully known, or at least what I thought at the time was fully known. And so that hurt her a lot. And uh, I don't know that it hurt our relationship. I do think it strengthened it, but it just provided things that we needed to work through um, early on. And so so this was in college. This was in college. You, We'd only been dating a couple months. And, yeah. you, and you let her into that. You said, yeah. well, hey, I got this problem. Yeah, I said, if, if you're going to gonna date me and know me, like, I think I'm not going to tell you everything because, I mean, we're just dating. We're not married. Uh, we're engaged with intent to marriage. But um, I at least you need, need you to know this um, because this has been a struggle and it continues to be a struggle. But I have men in my life that are processing that with me. Um, and so I don't think anyone had ever done that with her uh, and shared that. And so it was, it was hard, hard to, to hear and to understand, but she was very gracious. So when I talk about grace in my life, my wife was, was one of the first people to show that to me. Um, man, I'm going to get emotional. And uh, I'll never forget the, the, the conversations after that. Yes, the one in the moment, but the ones for years to come of learning grace through watching her. And when I say grace, I don't mean she was like, Oh, yeah, it's no big deal. Like, it hurt bad. But for her to accept me despite uh, my downfalls um, and to still love me very intentionally, uh, I needed that. I hadn't felt that from my parents because I hadn't confessed to them. Um, I knew my parents loved me, and I knew they would still love me if I did, but I had never gone there with them, and so I would never experienced that unconditional love from a human. In so many ways, I'd experienced it from God. But I think I needed to experience it from a human to understand what it meant fully to be, experience it from God. And so uh, we dated all through uh, college, and uh, I was getting ready to propose, talked with her dad. He's like, hey, you got to get a job. Because we were wanting to get married while she was still in school because she was a year younger than me. And so I respected that. I totally agreed with him. I need a job. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I'm graduating with a degree in mathematics. What do you do with that? I don't know if I still know that answer, but I liked school. And so I found a PhD program at the University of Arkansas. Uh, it was in economics and it provided a way for me to get married. It was continued education, but it was paid for and it paid a salary. And I'm like, hey, this sounds too good to be true. Like, let's do this. Not fully knowing what I was going to step into. And so uh, got engaged, uh, ended up getting married August 2011, and started the PhD a week before we got married. But I didn't realize I was going to be doing so much research and writing, which I didn't feel like was my cup of tea. So long story short, ended up dropping out of school. I'm a college dropout. Uh, dropped out of grad school. And that was really hard for me. As a success-driven person, as a guy who had always succeeded at all these academic things, to throw in the towel and say, I don't think this is for me, was very humbling. Um, and so I ended up stepping over to fellowship to do an internship program for a year, and uh, I've never left. <laughs> I'm now, you know, 12 years into staff. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I get asked a lot is about call to ministry. Um, here I am dropping out of college uh, and, you know, saying I'm going to work as an intern, and then I just kind of ended up on staff. And that's a longer story of how like God worked and all that. But the reason I bring that up is because I don't know that I've ever experienced a call to ministry in that sense. I think God has called all of us to ministry. And I think um, that I'm getting to do a unique aspect of that of being for it being my job in vocational ministry. So I, I think as a believer, I felt called to ministry, but I don't know that I'll pastor forever. I love where I'm at. I love the people that we get to shepherd. Alex and I processed that a lot of like how you, unique it is that God's called us here in this season to be with these people. Um, I love it. 
but I don't know that I could say I've felt the call to ministry. Uh, so I went into it going, I don't know if this is what I want to do, but I'd like to give it a shot because it's got to be better than this PhD program. The problem is it didn't pay anything. So I went from, you know, salary to nothing and uh, had to get, you know, side jobs of tutoring and other things to provide for my new wife and apply for scholarships and Pell Grants and all those things just to kind of survive for that first year. But the Lord did a work in my life to have a desire to do ministry full time. And so maybe that's what the call was. But I still hold it very open to go, God, if you're going to call me somewhere outside of this, like I want to listen. I don't want to think that I'm only ever going to pastor. Maybe I will because I love it so much right now. But I could see him pulling me in a different direction or to you. Like I do think I have a mathematics skill set. I'm going, why? Why did God design me this way if I'm not using it? So you got married. You're at an internship. You're not. You're not well off. You're yeah. poor. Yeah. Um, so let's go back to the pornography thing. You told her about it. Had you, did you have any relapses mm-hmm. after marriage, or did you just say, you know, I mean, after that it was good. I mean, right. how that? How what did you bring into the marriage, and how'd that work for you? What I carried into marriage was a heart for freedom, a couple of tools for freedom, and some confession, but. I wasn't fully free, and it actually wasn't until 2018, so this was now five years ago, that would have been seven years into marriage, that I got fully clean with my wife. I had told her about pornography, I told her about lust, but there were just some other things that I was holding onto deeply that had been hurtful, that that I'd you know, sinned in, that I'd never told anyone and didn't necessarily want to bring it up with anyone just because of the level of shame and um, and it's, you know, I, it's one of those things that I had to sit down with her. I actually found freedom through um, confession with some other guys and hearing someone else be open about something that they were struggling with. And so I'll never forget that transforming aspect of our marriage. And, uh, you know, something happens at seven years. Uh, we've seen the statistics of marriages and how they can either, you know, cling together and become stronger or begin to deviate. And and I know that happens probably at different stages, but... Um, for us, like that was a defining moment of our marriage. And in the last five years, having experienced a lot of freedom, I want to say full freedom again because of how I would define it, but a lot of freedom. My wife will tell me consistently, like, it's hard for me to remember the man that you were because you're different. And the Spirit of God has softened you through openness. Um, I feel like you're more, you're fully known in a way that you weren't for our first seven years of marriage, which is hard for me to feel like, did I waste, you know, seven years of our marriage? And in some ways I think I did because I wasn't able to be real with myself of all of the deep, even just mental things that were holding me back of things I didn't want to process and talk about. Um, And so, yeah, I think I brought a, a lot of baggage in, brought some tools for freedom, but it was actually through marriage and through my wife and confession that I found what I would consider more full freedom. Yeah. So I have a saying that says that concealment always costs more than confession. Mm-hmm. So it sounds to me like confessing to your wife and going through and, and her. And I'm, and so I'm assuming that there was some hurt there. Did, For does, sure. did she, did she ask you questions, you yeah. know, on a regular basis? And say, yeah. Hey, how you doing? Yeah. And, we, I mean, we, we have a very open policy about those things now. And she'll still, still tell me like, it's hard for me to fully trust because I know that there were things kept hidden in the first few years of our marriage. And, the way that I describe it to guys now is, um, and I've heard this from other people, but the 2% rule, like I was perfectly con- fine confessing the 98%. There's 2% that I was holding on to. 
And it was that 2% that I would say was actually causing issues in other aspects of life that it wasn't even necessarily related to. But because it was related to my heart, they were related. I just couldn't see it. And so I was struggling with anger and with other things because I don't think I was fully known by myself, um, by by Alex, definitely by the Lord, but wasn't willing to acknowledge it with him in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, I think I was definitely feeling the pains of keeping things secret. So what was the biggest challenge after all these years being married? Was that the biggest challenge or were there some other things that maybe were challenging for you? I would say there were, there were two. That's the first one. And, and the weird thing is, you know, for me to bring that stuff to my wife, I felt lighter way lighter because this is something I've been carrying, but the illustration I use when I'm processing this with guys, because this is something that I process with a lot of people who are in marriage and going, I've never talked about this. What you do is you take this weight, this backpack off and you take it off and it feels great to take it off, but you put it on your wife, you put it on your spouse um, and you have to. That's one of the things that we sign up for in marriage is to be fully known Um, I wish I didn't have that backpack in the first place, but because I had that weight of sin that I was carrying, I had to let her in on that. And the only thing that it was going to do for her at that time was put a weight on her, a weight of pain, of shame, of asking questions, of distrust. And so in a weird way, like I felt much lighter, but now my wife is much heavier with this stuff. And so we went to counseling. Um, We we brought another trusted couple uh, in with us. Um, some some close friends that walked with us, but we also went to professional counseling just to work through a lot of the details of it and how we were setting ourselves up to process going forward. And so that would be the thing I would say was most difficult from a decision standpoint, something that I had done that caused pain in our marriage. But the other aspect was our miscarriage. Uh, so we have we have three children. I guess I should probably talk about them. Um, they are uh, Hank, Duke, and Bill. So it's three boys. It's our little Filipino country band. And they are nine, about to be seven, and about to be four. And so my wife and I really wanted to have a fourth child. And this was back in 2021. We had gotten pregnant pretty easily with the first three. And this time it took eight months. And I had, I think it was month seven that we said, hey, this is not the Lord's will. Like we, we are not supposed to have a fourth. Let's trust in that. So um, I called to get a certain surgery done, and like we were on the process of shutting everything down, and then uh, that day we found out we were pregnant. And so we went from like this emotional roller coaster of like, we really want a child. Oh, we're content with where the Lord has us. Oh my goodness, now we're going to have a child. And uh, so we were going through that pregnancy, and it was actually at 17 weeks. We were a week away from finding out gender. My wife went into an appointment, and I'll never forget that phone call, sitting in Airship Coffee in Bentonville, and I got the call. And she didn't say a word. She, she, I just heard tears and screaming and, and just heart heartbreak. So I took off, and our lives have forever been changed from that moment. We would describe it as the biggest tra- tragedy in our marriage and, in a weird way, the biggest gift from God of Him you know, ha- holding that child and allowing us to experience pain. And I'm not saying that God wants us to be in pain or anything like that, but through what we experience through His closeness, um, through his peace, through our community. I mean, it was in a lot of ways, we're still processing through it. And, you know, it's two years later, but we've learned so much about the the beauty of um, not only dependence on the Lord, but on other people around us. Alex and I could not walk through that season alone. We were hurting bad and the church rallied around us. I'm the guy who's usually organizing these things, right? 
and encouraging people to serve and I'm serving and connecting. It was hard for me to be served, but oh my goodness, I needed it so bad. We did, and we didn't know how to ask for help. And we learned so much about what people need in those moments. And now we're better able to minister. And so those are the two hardest parts of our marriage, one through confession of sin and then one through the, through tragedy. And I think either of those, had we not had community around us, had we not had a commitment of faith of our own and a commitment to each other, a major wedge could have been driven. And um, we just praise the Lord for his faithfulness through all of that and kind of where we're at on the other end. Yeah, I like that James 5, 16 Mm -hmm. verse that I think you mentioned it earlier, but, you know, let us confess our sins one to another so that you may be healed. It's amazing how the confession to other people, not to mention your wife, but, you know, other men letting those in Mm -hmm. and saying, hey, let's let's talk about this. Let's hold each other accountable and let's, yeah. let's confess. Right. Let's, let's admit the, the truth. Right. And the only, I would say, sins I'd ever really confessed to other people were the ones against them, which is also a biblical thing. Like if I've wronged you, I want to confess and let you know, or if I've talked bad about you or said something. But I've learned the value. Like I need to confess sins that have nothing to do with you as a trusted friend, but I need you in. Because when I let people in, like light drives out darkness. That's not just a theoretical biblical thing that Jesus is talking about, like it is legit and I've seen it at play in my life. And that if I let light in, like darkness has to flee and it brings peace in the Lord that I've never experienced before in being fully known. Amen. So Hunter, what would you tell the person who's listening today who feels that God is speaking to them and maybe calling to them to make change in their life? Hmm. Well, I hope this this I hope I don't even have to say it. It's just it's just there for my story. But things can't be left in the secret and then darkness. I would say I'd, I'd answer that two ways. One, to let someone in. Um, gotta let people in. And it's not enough to let God in. God's already in, right? We don't let God in. He knows what's going on. Um, we have to learn to let people in. And that is a very um scary thing, especially for someone like me who had never really done that with someone, to allow someone else, whether it's a spouse or a trusted friend, into what's really going on was terrifying because they're going to see what I know is in there, but no one else knows. Um, But on the other side of that too, and this would be my big encouragement, is we have to learn to show ourselves grace. I think I was quicker to show other people grace, um, even to, you know, maybe accept grace from God, I did not know how to give myself grace and to say, Hunter, you are human. You have failed. Now, I I lean towards what Paul says. Do we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. But when I do fall, I've got to learn to understand what grace really is and that I'm not required to be perfect because I can't. And that is literally the reason that Jesus went to the cross. And so part of that grace does come from letting others in. I think they coincide. I don't think I could really show myself grace till I was fully known. Right. And, uh, but also even after being fully known, I had to allow some of that to be covered by the blood of Jesus and well, all of it to be covered, but to experience that forgiveness for myself. Hunter, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now... I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. The man who wrote that song, John Newton, was a human trafficker. He wrote that song because he wanted to confess his sins 
and expose them to the light. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins one to another so that you may receive healing. Do you need healing in your life today? Concealment always, always costs more than confession. Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? The healing process is not always easy, but it is worth it. Change is possible, but if nothing changes, nothing changes. See you next time.